And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 10 or Matthew chapter 11. We're going through the gospel of Matthew. And last week in chapter 11, we looked at John the Baptist and the way he deals with his difficulty and doubt. And we talked about you find yourself in a time of just doubt and, and, and depression. You know, where do you go? Who do you turn to? And then today we're going to kind of move out from there. And we're going to look at what Jesus kind of presents of himself. Because Matthew chapter 11 and 12 are all about Jesus's identity. Who does he claim to be? What are his claims about who he is? And so that's going to be the theme for the next uh, couple of weeks as we're thinking about identity. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to be a public figure. I would not, you know, it's tough being a public figure. And you think, you know, if you're a public figure, everything right now you say can and will be used against you in the court of public opinion. And so we need to show, you know, just everyone kind of mercy and grace. And one of our hopes here is that we'll be the kind of people that you can kind of, by default, give people the benefit of the doubt. But I don't know if you saw last week on Meet the Press, um, Dr. Fauci was being interviewed. And one of the questions was like, how do you deal with all all the public criticism that comes your way. And I don't know if you saw his response. His response was most of the, the criticism that comes at me is not coming at me. It's coming at science. And uh, of course, that just led to a whole barrage of more criticism. Like, who does he think he is? Does he think he actually is science? Is he claiming to be science itself? And I think a charitable, like, reading of what he's saying is that he's trying to detach himself personally and he doesn't take it personal, that he's just trying to present the data. But uh, got compared to Alec Baldwin's character in um, the, the 1990s movie uh, Malice. So it's not a great movie. Uh, Alec Baldwin is a doctor. He's being sued for $20 million for malpractice because he removed an ovary from Nicole Kidman that he thought was going to possibly kill her, but turned out not to be uh, dangerous. But it has one of his most kind of famous lines, not quite as famous as the few good men line, you know, like, you you know, you want answers, you can't handle, you know, you can't handle the truth. Not that line, but it's the Alec Baldwin God complex line. I don't know too many surgeons, so I don't know if that's a common mentality amongst uh, surgeons, but you say, all right, what would the most charitable reading of that interaction be. Maybe he understands that God uses secondary means and when he uses people, that he's not actually saying he is God, uh, because that would just be too strange, too weird, too out there. Like it's, it's, it's almost hard to imagine someone so pompous and arrogant that they would actually make that claim for themselves. And actually, the way you kind of feel, the way that makes you feel uncomfortable is just a window into getting back into how almost all of Jesus's original first century hearers would have heard him. They say, wait, wait, wait a second. Is he really claiming? He's not claiming to be science itself, is he? He's not claiming to be God himself, is he? And it would cause him a tremendous amount of uncomfort, discomfort. They would be uncomfortable with what he's claiming. And so as we go through 11 and 12, one of the things we have to do is some sense we have to try and get back into their world and think, all right, Jesus is actually making these extraordinary claims. He's going to claim for himself prerogatives that only God can do. And so how do we respond to that? What does it actually mean? 
You know, in one sense, we have the advantage of 2,000 years in hindsight where we can look back and we kind of know how the story ends. We know there were significant things that he's going to do later on in his life that's going to contribute to a belief that he is God himself. And then we have, you know, church history where some of the smartest minds who have ever lived have kind of thought through these things to help us out. But we kind of have to feel kind of the, the, the discomfort of some of these claims. And one thing is he's going to tell us, all right, if you're going to understand who I am, you need to not stumble. So don't stumble out of the gate. You have to give me a hearing. Don't stumble. And he says, you're going to need to actually chuckle and then you'll need to be humble. So we'll kind of walk through those three where you need to first don't stumble. And you see this in verse 7 through 15. So let's kind of walk through this passage. So uh, he's just told them in verse 6, he's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist has come and asked, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And then Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me, who doesn't stumble. All right, so that's the theme of this chapter. How do we uh, hear who he is and not stumble? And it said in verse 7, as these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Now he's about to affirm John and his ministry. And notice there's going to be three different times that he's going to ask a question. What did you go in the wilderness to see? What did you go in the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? Assumed answer, no. Think, all right, reed, what does that mean? Why would they go to a wilderness to see reed? Maybe it's an image to reeds would be used kind of like uh, weather vanes to see which way the wind is blowing. So he say he wasn't just somebody that would blow this way and that with the popular opinion. Or maybe it was, you know, nobody would travel to the wilderness to see a reed. Like you could look in your backyard for that. You know, you go, you travel to see redwoods. So maybe it's the image that John was something unique, something extraordinary, something strong. But what did you go to see? Wasn't that? What did you go to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in royal palaces. You didn't go see some public figure who's some celebrity, some royal king. Well, what did you go out to see? A prophet. You went to see a prophet. Yes, and I tell you more than a prophet. So there's something unique about him. There's something more. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Now, this is very interesting. So he's going to quote Malachi, but kind of all the, um, you know, the, well, actually, um, the, well, actually, people who would hear Jesus say, oh, well, you, Malachi, you almost got it right. It's not, um, he will send a messenger before you, it's he'll send his messenger before me. Those are me's. God's saying that God himself is going to come, and you just, I mean, I think you misspoke, but you just said it was you who was coming. He said, well, did he? Did he misspeak? So Jesus says he's going to come before me, and, he's, and the text says, well, he's coming before Yahweh. All right, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John is the greatest who's ever lived up until this point, but there's someone who's coming that's going to usher in a kingdom where he will be the least and the least in that kingdom will be greater than him. It's extraordinary. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence and the violent have been seizing it by force. It's kind of strange. What does he mean there? You know, One possibility is that the way you get into the kingdom is kind of, you be violent, violent against your own sin. That's how like John Piper or Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, you know, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, what do you have to do? You have to cut off hands. You got to gouge out eyes. That's what uh, is part of the kingdom. Or another way you could take that, the violent, like Herod, violent people are seizing them and oppressing them. And John's about to, he's in prison because he's about to be martyred. So the violent are going after them. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John And if you're willing to accept it. So here's the thing. Don't stumble. You won't ever actually understand who I am if you don't first understand who John is. And he's actually Elijah. 
Let anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus says, first thing, don't stumble that John is Elijah. Now, why would they stumble at that? Because remember, all, all of the gospels start with John the Baptist's ministry and the prophecy that when Elijah comes, he's actually going to make way, make raise up the valleys, lower the mountains to make the way for the Lord himself to come. So Jesus is actually making really extraordinary claims. If John really is Elijah, then the question is, then who is Jesus? He's actually God himself coming and that would be a staggering claim. He's the Lord. And we're going to see this all through. He's going to take upon himself the prerogative to, to forgive sins, to call down judgment, to bring the Sabbath rest. And it's one of the great challenges. And so as we read through this, all right, Jesus makes these claims like, how can you say, like, what gives you the, the right to identify as this person? As the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son, uh, the Lord of the Sabbath. And so you think about it, what, you know, kind of contested identities. And just kind of in the world we live in, that's such a challenge. Like we're living in a world where that's something, you know, we have to think about. How do you define your identity? You know, one of the, the strongest cultural currents is identity politics, where the kind of the four defining factors of who you are, race, gender, sexuality, and class. And we think, all right, what are the things that actually define those? How do you define them? Who gets to identify as what? You know, look at the Supreme Court, you know, the ruling in Obergefell versus Hodges, you know, kind of the line that legalized uh, homosexual marriage. The line was at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. So the very heart of liberty means you get to define these things. So we say things like sexuality, that's something you get to define. Gender, that's something you get to define. But then race, is that something you get to define? Like, I don't know if you saw a couple years ago, it was uh, Rachel Ann uh, Dolezal who kind of got herself in some legal trouble because she was the uh, NAACP president in Spokane, Washington. She taught African studies at Eastern Washington University and then uh, brought kind of very, very public um, racial discrimination case and then it came out that she actually wasn't African-American. She was white. And then she lost her job and was kind of publicly humiliated. But her argument was, no, 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 wait, I identify as African-American. And the response was, no, you can't just identify as that. You have to be that. And so the question is, what things can you just identify as? Or what do you have to be? And how do you make sense of those things? So, for example, like uh, you might go somewhere and you, the only way you can travel there is if you're vaccinated. Like, are you allowed to say, I identify as a vaccinated person, whether you are or not? You say, well, that's not the kind of thing you can just say you are. And then we look at what Jesus is doing here. He's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable because he starts claiming things, saying, this is who I am. And they're like, well, no, wait, can, is that the kind of thing you can just say you are? And then how do you... So like, for example, he looks at the man and says, he tells the man who gets lowered in the, in the mat to, son, rise, your sins are forgiven. And it makes him very uncomfortable. Wait, you can't, can you just say that? Can you identify as the one who forgives sins? So this, this question is one that's very easy 
to stumble at. And Jesus said, all right, you're going to have to give me some space. Don't stumble. You're going to hear me make claims about who I am, but you need to have an open mind so you hear. But then notice he's going to give them this image. And he says, all right, in order to hear, you know, why are we in this kind of confusion? Why is it going to be difficult for you to hear? He says, what you're going to need is you're actually going to need to chuckle at yourself. So look what he says in verse 16. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and they say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by your deeds." And what Jesus actually is doing here is he's using somewhat of a humorous illustration to make a very serious point. And he says, look, this generation, what the world is like, the world is like kids who are at the playground and they cannot agree on what to play. And you've all seen this. Kids gather and one says, all right, let's play house. No, no, I don't want to play house. Let's play war. No, we don't want to play war. We want to play and they can't agree on what they're going to play. And then he says, it's just like when one uh, wants to play this, they say, no, we don't want that. Well, then let's play this. No, we don't want that. Well, what do you want to play? Well, we don't know. So you can feel this just when you ask coworkers to go out to lunch. Or you might ask people from here, let's go out to lunch after church. Where do you want to go? Oh, let's go get pizza. No, I don't want pizza. All right, let's go get a hamburger. No, I don't want to get a hamburger. Well, what do you want? I don't know. You know, why, why do we know the things we don't want more than the things we actually one way to solve some problems? All right, name the places you don't want to go. And then once everybody names it, you'll have like two left and it can make the decision easy. But this actually, Jesus is using a humorous, humorous illustration of kids who can't agree on what to play on the playground to illustrate what is not so humorous and lives in all of us. And it's something, it's, it's what unbelief actually does. It's a perfect illustration of unbelief. And notice some of the marks. I mean, the first mark says, all right, we're not going to listen to the music that's being played for us. We're going to decide what we want to play. Actually, you could sum up what he's saying is that the heart of liberty is the right to define for myself my own concept of existence. We're not going to listen to the music. We define what we're going to play. You know, they're not teachable. They don't have an open mind. They don't come. All right, what, what's being played? How can I play it? How can I join in? They're going to determine. And uh, they reject, in this case, they're rejecting Jesus out of hand. What he's giving is, all right, why are people rejecting John and then rejecting Jesus? So they decide what game they're going to play. And then notice how fickle they are. You know, it's kind of like this behavioral bipolar where we want to weep and mourn. No, we don't want that. We want to celebrate and we want to rejoice. Let's celebrate. No, let's cry. And both of us just pretend. There's no real sorrow and there's no real joy. And that's the reality of unbelief. That's the reality of what sin does. Like you go and you look out in the world and, you know, one of the most obvious things, like if you ever go to a frat house on Saturday night is how hard people are working to pretend that they're having fun. It's like they know we're supposed to be having fun here. So this is what life's supposed to be about. So let's act like it is, even though you just look in their eyes for three seconds and you can tell there's no life there. 
trying to pretend like we're having fun. This is exactly what unbelief is. This is what Jesus is pointing out. They're just pretending. They're play acting. And they can't even settle on what it is they really want. And notice how it just goes back and forth and back and forth. And this is one of the crazy things. He's illustrating why they don't accept John's message and then why they didn't accept Jesus' message. And notice, they don't accept John because he's too uptight and stiff. He's too harsh. And they don't accept Jesus because he's too joyful. He's too welcoming. He's too opening. And just back and forth. You know, one of the kind of helpful things about knowing church history is you can go throughout church history and you can look at what are the common reasons that kind of cultures in general will um, disregard, you know, the gospel message, disregard Jesus. And often it's so funny how they'll just swing back and forth. You know, one of the things that might really surprise you, you know, in the 1920s, from so like 1880s to 1920s, one of the, the most common reasons for kind of those in the intelligentsia to discount or discredit Jesus, the church, the gospel message, is because of the way it empowered and spoke to the weak, the vulnerable, and the poor. And like you could actually, you could take quotes from people like Nietzsche and you couldn't say them because you would, you would just hear how misogynistic and racist they are. And the reason is because what Christianity does is it empowers the weak and the lowly. And it's something that you're ignorant, you're uneducated, can understand and love. So it can't be true. And it was so interesting is right now the exact opposite is the assumed reason for rejecting Jesus and his gospel. You know, it's something that's, uh, you know, it's the, it's the white man's religion that's been used to oppress all the weak and the powerless and the poor. And it's just the exact opposite. And that's why you go, you know, you go 20 years ago, you might've heard, you know, the rejection, you know, Christians are just goody two shoes. They're so moral. And then now it's, well, Christians are um, bad for society. They're evil. They're wicked. You know, anti-intellectual sometimes, too intellectual, not feeling enough, too feeling, goes back and forth. You can hear this even in same conversations with people. You can hear, well, you know, the problem with the church is that it's just too political. What you need to do is keep your, um, your private beliefs need to stay private, not bring them out into the public sphere. And then you'll hear, well, why isn't the church speaking more about justice? Why aren't they standing up to do something about it? You see, those actually are contradictory things. You can't do both. And what it is, we just live in a world of tension and contradiction. And it's not just that the world's like that. If you're honest and look in the mirror, you know you're like that. I mean, there's things, I mean, Paul in Romans 7, doesn't he perfectly articulate life where you know there's things like you really desire, but you're not willing to do the things that actually bring them about? I mean, you see that like in relationships, you can have relational tension because you'll say, you know, I just want you to be more emotional and more expressive and tell me how you're feeling. And then, no, give me my space. We want both of those things. We do it with our kids. Like we can say, look, you need to obey and just do what I tell you. And then how come I have to tell you everything? Just make a decision. You should know what you're doing. We do it in work. Like we want work where we can have all this freedom and autonomy, but then we want the stability and structure of a paycheck and somebody uh, who's going to be over us, you know, we do it in so many ways. And what it is, is just we're just kind of this big ball of contradictions, just like these children. We actually don't even know the things that we want. We just know the things we don't. And what it leads to is somebody who's just never satisfied. You know, look at these kids. They make their demands. They make their request. We demand to play this. And then when that gets played, they don't do that. And no, 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 we demand this. And you know what happens is they never actually get to dance. They don't dance. And that's what sin does. It makes us where we're just never satisfied. 
So what do we do? You know, how do we overcome this? And I think one of the ways to overcome it is in one of the sweet slanders that Jesus brings out in this word and this verse. And it's, it's we have to be humble because notice what their critique of Jesus is. He's a glutton, eats too much. He's a drunkard, goes to too many parties. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's a friend of sinners. And so that's actually meant to be a criticism. It's meant to be a cut down. But could you imagine any sweeter title for those who actually recognize themselves to be sinners? Do you know why they take that as, you know, why they say that? He's a friend of sinners because they don't think they are sinners. They're not humble, and so they won't actually receive what he came to bring. So think about how is Jesus a friend to sinners? You know, what type of friend is he? You, know, you think about he comes to bring a restoration project. He's going to renew and restore all things. But what type of restorer is he? Is he one that just sits in his truck and barks out orders to the, the crew? Does he lead from the cab of the truck? You don't find him standing at a distance, issuing his mandates and his orders, telling, here, make yourself better, fix that, tear that down, you do that. You see him right in the mix, getting his hands dirty with sinners. He's a friend. You know, he's a great physician, but what kind of doctor is he? Is he kind of doctor you have to call into and do telemedicine where he gives his prescriptions and says, take two of these and call me in the morning. See you later. Or is he involved and invested and right in the very mix? You know, one of the sweetest and precious realities about who Christ is, is that he's a friend to sinners. He comes preaching to them how they can enter into the kingdom. He comes teaching them about the way of the father. He comes healing them by touching them and walking with them. And of course, the greatest proof that he is a friend of sinners is the way he substitutes himself for them on the cross. The way he puts himself in their place. He who knew no sin actually becomes sin on their behalf. So it's on the cross we see the friend of sinners who's going to suffer as a sinner. It's on the cross we see him bleeding as a sinner. We see him crying out as a sinner. We see him dying as a sinner. And when we look to the cross, what we see is that while we were sinners, yet he died for us. And greater love has no man than this, than he who lays down his life for his friends. And that's what it means to be the friends of sinners. And so the real question is, do, do, do you know what it is to become his friend? No, do you know that you are a sinner? I mean, this is one of the things that we have to express and identify as is that we all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And we stand in the place like these towns that he's about to bring woe upon stand deserving judgment. And notice what he says in verse 19, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And when you believe him, your deeds is that you repent of your sin and turn to him and ask him to hear you. So as we get ready and we come to the table every week, we celebrate the Lord's table and the Lord's table is that opening, that invitation. Come friends, come to my table, 
come and feast. But the way we get in is that we have to recognize that who we are is that we are sinners and we have to repent. You know, the saddest thing about people not entering into and hearing the sounds of the music of John the Baptist and Jesus is they missed out on two things. John came preaching and they needed to repent. And then Jesus came celebrating and they need to rejoice. But they missed both of them. So the way we enter in is through repentance. So let's just pause and take a moment and ask the Lord this morning to search your heart. Do you really know that you are a sinner? Is that something you know? So if it is so, then pray this way. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. But for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight to do your will and walk in your ways. Amen. Now the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body and it's broken so you can be made whole again. So take. And after the supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and the forgiveness of sins. This is poured out for my friends to receive forgiveness. Drink and do this in remembrance of me. So now let's pray and let's thank him for what it cost him to be the friend of sinners and then what it means for us to experience that. So holy and gracious Father, in your love, you made us for yourself. But when we sinned against you and became subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent your only son, Jesus Christ, into the world for us and for our salvation. And by the Holy Spirit, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. In obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and he offered himself once for all that by his suffering and death, we might be saved. And by his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. And our great high priest, he has ascended to your right hand in glory so that we might come in confidence into your presence. Help us to know what it means to be and have him as the friend of sinners. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.